we forecast prices and fundamentals. Whether you're a trader, producer, or consumer, you can hedge your bets with Montel's diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring you energy matters from under my stairs. My name is Richard Sverson and today we're talking to someone with a very wide and rich background in energy from the TSO side as well as the utility side. She's also an expert in EU policy having worked in the hub hub of Brussels for many many years. A warm welcome to you Suzanne Inez, country manager at Smart wires. Thank you very much, Richard. I think before we go into the nitty gritty of sort of wires, wind turbines and the inner workings of Brussels, let's talk first of all about the EU recovery plan that came out this week. Uh, I see the wind lobby has called it, you know, a big bazooka. What do you make of it? No, I must say I'm uh, for the first announcement, yeah, really positive. Yeah, And when you look back on this commission von der Leyen, that was a total surprise for everyone. Yeah, And then starting off being before a minister of defense with a green deal, being even more ambitious than the Greens have been, yeah? with the 55 or 50% CO2 reductions, greenhouse gas reductions by 2030. Yeah? That was fantastic. It came as a maybe shock also to the commission that was just like surviving the clean energy package. And then in COVID, before COVID, uh, many people were saying, hey, uh, von der Leyen hasn't made any mistakes so far. Yeah, that was a bit the perception in Brussels, and I was still there. Yeah, And then came COVID, and no one spoke about the Green Deal anymore. And now to see in this recovery plan of $750 billion that was unveiled or discussed in the parliament uh, yesterday, yeah, to align this with the Green Deal, uh, I think this is really very well done, yeah? We can discuss a lot of details, but the overall direction, I think, is absolutely right. What is new in it? I mean, and, and what does it mean for the green transition, in your view? Exactly. So I see a bit of uh, accents have changed from the initial Green Deal to what we see now in this, let's call it the Green Marshall Plan, something like that. Yeah, When you recall after Second World War, this uh, huge uh, recovery plan that was very conditional to cooperation, etc. It is a new plan. We see, for example, that renovation of buildings is much more important. Yeah, We also see that insisting on renewables is much more important because many policymakers and industry alike are afraid of seeing uh, renewable investments slow down. The cleaner transport is uh, more emphasized and also the just transition. Indeed, uh, taking everyone along is, is really important, but even more in COVID time. So I see a bit of change in uh, priorities. I'm happy also to see uh, infrastructure and innovation being important here. Are there any losers here? I mean, um, you know, obviously renewables, the innovation, the you know, infrastructure are, are certainly going to do well out of this, but who, who's not? I don't really see losers there. There's some delays for some of the projects. Yeah, And we also see, I didn't mention that, uh, there's uh, maybe a, a hype uh, in the moment. There's a lot of attention for sector coupling, hydrogen, these kind of things. And they also made it to it, but you don't see it on the front page of this package. Yeah. 
we need, of course, to see how this is gonna gonna be implemented. So I think it's it's announcement at this point in time. It's not yet adopted. We need to see if it's really gonna deliver. There's a lot of uh, fears related to that on the EU level. So let's wait and see how it's going to be implemented. But I wouldn't see losers, lots of promise, a bit of Christmas package also. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Big Santa <laughs> Claus package, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so let's see how this is going to, going to work out. For sure. I'm moving on to the post-COVID-19 energy markets. I mean, how do you see this evolving? Do you see the demand for, certainly for electricity, recovering to pre-coronavirus levels? Yes, I think so. Yeah, it's quite spectacular to see like in countries like Germany, we have seen uh, demand uh, go down by uh, something like 15%. Yeah? In electricity, and we saw the, especially conventional being stopped while uh, renewables have been continuing to, to grow. Yeah? So we, we don't know yet. Uh, this depends also on the vaccines and that kind of thing. Yeah? When will we really start to see a recovery in uh, an economic sense? Yeah? But there was a clear trend to see electricity grow in the energy mix. And uh, this trend will not be stopped. Yeah, then we will rather see changes when it comes to fossil fuels, changes in how people behave post-COVID, less travel. There is indeed a question mark on what it means for e-mobility. The low oil price is certainly not helpful here. It's a lot of lobbying going on to get the hard-hitting car industry back on track. And uh, I really think that governments need to be very strong on keeping momentum on immobility in these days. So those are the mo- most at, at risk, I would say. But I have no doubt that electricity demand is going to return and even to go beyond pre-crisis levels. Okay, because the crucial thing here is, is really is the electrification of transport. You mentioned sector coupling earlier as well, but is there a chance here in the, the post-COVID-19 that, that people just won't have the funds or the money to buy electric vehicles uh, as they did in the previous time? And it's much easier to, to fall back on fossil fuel-fired vehicles or cars. Yeah, Exactly. So I would say in a free market environment, yeah, that would happen exactly as you describe it. However, look at uh, Germany also, yeah, the uh, EEG Umlage, which is the surcharge for renewables that has become a huge part of the retail price, is now put on tax that is on the oil for the cars, yeah, on the, on the fuels, yeah. So you see here that governments intervene and then they put additional taxes on the fuels and that they try to intervene that way. I also saw that uh, there will be some primes for buying uh, electric cars and that kind of thing. So th- there's a government intervention discussion at this point in time. And uh, if it's done right, and depending on country, we will not see what you described before. So it's much easier to add taxes and levies rather than getting into sort of difficult state aid areas, isn't it? Exactly. And this is exactly the point. You cannot say I'm now going to give subsidies to, let's say, BMW or Volkswagen or something. (laughs) Because then this would be the end. We already saw, and I think everyone was shocked how fast it's possible to get the Schengen borders back again and to have uh, a nation state that is really uh, the game maker. So we shouldn't see now the internal market dismantled with a strong state aid uh, using the crisis as an advantage. We need to go for measures, but not for companies. I think also 
crucial here and as you've mentioned both in the the recovery plan and the green transition post covid-19 you know we will see a massive growth in renewables now the flip side of that is of course the infrastructure and the grids and the networks and i know this is uh, you're quite an expert on this susanna so is the key question do we need to build more grids or can we make do with what we have and use them more efficiently well, this is a it's a very good question and i think the the attention for infrastructure has clearly been on the rise in the last years. They are kind of the decisive element in this energy system transition that was started in particular in countries like Germany. And as you said, there, there is really a bottleneck and huge cost in redispatch and containment in countries like Germany. They go beyond a billion a year. We had the 1.4 billion. Yeah. So do we need more infrastructure? The answer is yes, we need more infrastructure because you need for this flexible operation of the network with renewables, and that is increasing. Yeah, You need uh, more infrastructure. However, we need to say that the existing networks are absolutely not used today to their optimum. You saw the European provision for 70% of the capacity of interconnectors to be available to market just as a sign Today, it's not even 30% in many cases. Yeah, So we need to see this change and the technologies are there. There we see sometimes, unfortunately, obstacles that are partly, uh, say, attitude. The good news is that the COVID crisis takes everyone out of comfort zone. We change our habits, everyone. Yeah. The other side is, is also the incentive regulation. Yeah? We need to get uh, regulation ministries to bet much more on new solutions as to really take every uh, kilowatt hour of the, of the networks and get every uh, renewables, especially offshore, that's going to be built massively yeah, into uh, the power grids. I mean, that leads me to my next question, Susanna, which is, you know, you come from a Brussels background, more of which later, but you've moved to smart wires. Could you tell us a little bit about your role and, and what you do now and why you made that move? <laughs> yes, many thanks for, for that question. Yeah, so, so I'm really passionate about electricity. I find it absolutely fascinating. I'm not an engineer, but uh, since um, like 15 years I'm working in, in this area and it's the governance of something that moves near to speed of light, like 297,000 kilometers a second. Yeah, manage that. It's just unbelievable, yeah. I'm really impressed with that, and especially on the European, how to get it in a regional context. Yeah? And after this tour that took me from research with IFRI and then to Euroelectric generation and distribution to NCOE, uh, SmartWires is a, a new kid on the block, we should say. It's a very new company. It emerged uh, with uh, a blackout very often. It's, it's that kind of context. Yeah? There was uh, in 2003 a huge uh, blackout in uh, Eastern Canada and the US. And at once there was uh, students in Georgia Tech University that have a very important program on new solutions yeah, that have been looking at solutions. Yeah. And that has been further expanded since then. And today's solution that are there from SmartWise, that's a company based in, uh, in near San Francisco in Silicon Valley with like 300 uh, collaborators, yeah, it's a technology that uh, optimizes precisely the power networks and it's already up and running in the UK and the US and several countries. Yeah? And even got oh, its game-changing nature. It got, it got an award yesterday by the World Economic Forum. It's an award about how utilities can change 
the flexibility of the grids. Yeah, how can flexibility on the grids be increased? Could you give us an example, Suzanne? I mean, how could it work? Um, how could it benefit the energy vendor in in Germany? The energy transition there. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's a very good point. So Germany is, of course, the the mastermind. I would say it was the early adopter and the starter. We financed in Germany. Uh, the learning curve of solar and wind. And so now today, Germany has these huge costs, system costs of the energy transition, has the hugest amount of neighbors in Europe. Uh, globally, the most neighbors are with uh, China and Russia, but in Germany, we have nine neighbors. Yeah? So we are responsible also for avoiding loop flows and impacts on neighboring systems. Yeah? So using smart wireless devices in Germany would mean that we could swap from what's used today, state-of-the-art, uh, more conventional technology that's called phase-shifting technology, to our technology that is hybrid in having hardware and software combined is modular, so it can be moved once the situation changes. You can put it to another place, which is not the case for these phase-shifters, and you could save a huge amount of money. I, I should mention also here that... Uh, we do not know exactly how the energy transition is going to play out. It means what exactly is the need of every year? And you need extremely flexible solutions that are not leading to huge investments that are stranded. Yeah. So we are currently working with uh, Aachen University that's famous for its competence in uh, power networks. Professor Moser and his team, uh, Mrs. Kletke, yeah. And some others, yeah, we are working or we have been working on a study that precisely looked into the benefits of such a solution and the result is outstanding. So we, we are going to deliver this study on 22nd of June publicly, yeah, but we see that we can save double amounts of uh, the costs today of curtailment and uh, of uh, the renewables, uh, so curtailment and redispatch, and that we are flexible. Excellent. I mean... I was an Erasmus student in Aachen, actually, but uh, but I studied history, <laughs> so I wasn't on the technical side. But uh, what do you make, Susanna, of um, the debate around the bidding zones? I mean, could something like the technology that SmartWise provides, could that prevent the, the splitting of markets? Could it keep the, the larger bidding zones, or is it completely separate? I think it's not completely separate, yeah, because the big picture, of course, now when we look at Germany, is that we have a north-south problem, yeah. Of course, the Germany, Germany is aware of this since long time, and the huge HVDC network called Südlink that is there to ease a lot of generation, especially onshore, but in the future offshore, a lot of, let's say, interaction there, to a south that has seen nuclear phase out, deadline is 2022, as we know, uh, a lot of industrial demand. Yeah? So we need to ease that situation, yeah? and the grids are the bottleneck here. We believe that uh, Südlink, or this, that's the official uh, assumption, yeah, it's not there before 2026, 2027 at earliest. So you need to find a solution through optimization technologies. And this is also uh, recognized by regulator and government with what they call a NOVA principle. Yeah? This means optimization ahead of reinforcement, ahead of more grids, yeah? more efficient that way. Yeah? So the answer is clearly yes. We can help uh, to ease that. And we should also say that the approach chosen by the European Commission, the 70% in interconnection, uh, so capacity to market, is in a way an alternative to bidding zone splits that Germany doesn't want. Yeah? Germany doesn't want to be split <laughs> after you know, you know that yeah. discussion. 
No, exactly. And, and certainly, I mean, you have the TSO background, but uh, there's been a lot of resistance from some TSOs to the 70% target as well, hasn't there? Yes, but because it's challenging. I honestly understand that. Yeah, mm. it's, it's challenging because uh, when you do build an inter- interconnect our internal uh, networks, yeah, of course, you have some assumptions when doing so. And having such a target changes entirely the business cases and the way of operating of the networks that you have or that you have just released. Yeah? So it is a challenge to update plans. And you've maybe seen Germany has released an action plan bidding zone, as it's called, that is there to address by 2025 the 70%. Yeah? And this doesn't work. And here we are back to our discussion. Yeah, doesn't work mm. with what's called ad hoc measures. Ad hoc measures today being pay shifting technologies. In the future, hopefully, being smart devices like our smart valve devices. So the ad hoc being sort of the the plaster on the system rather than the actual optimized solution. Let's talk, Suzanne, a little bit about your background. I mean, you you mentioned your electric and ENSOE. Uh, what changes did you see in your in your time there? Uh, and what insights did you gain into the the hubbub of the, the Brussels political, I think you called it the bubble um, in <laughs> yeah. the past. So I worked in Euroelectric between 2010 and 2015, yeah. And uh, for example, renewables was not a working group at that time, yeah. But uh, there was a working group on each technology, but it was simply a kind of a task force, yeah. Uh, so I was like uh, assisting the change, taking renewables serious in these five years. You might believe that's really late. But it was like that. Yeah. So there was really a bit, you could say, donkey shot fighting the windmill, <laughs> at least for some of the companies. Yeah. And then there was a total change. Yeah. When I left uh, your elective, we did this uh, innovation action plan, looking at how utilities would adopt the world in the future yeah, and how, how they see their business change. And I was amazed how much they are aligned from Poland to Portugal. Mm on how they saw this picture. Yeah? You know, when I came from Euroelectric to NCOE, I had not the best opinion of NCOE. Uh, <laughs> it was a common fashion to bash uh, those that had an outstanding role as per third package. Mm. But I learned in NCOE this amazing and important role in writing network codes, these fantastic insights of the engineers from all these was 34 countries and uh, 42 TSOs writing up the rules of the game, yes, that was quite amazing. But also, of course, the certain friction between what is the national agenda, what is the European agenda, and the regional somehow stick in between. Yeah, so that was was mm. interesting to to learn. And now, so after ten years associations, you will really need to turn a page. It's also kind of working for the United Nations. Yeah, you always find <laughs> your deals and your compromise. Yeah? You need to turn a page. And a company like uh, Smart Wires are, of course. Uh, they are a page of a book of the future. They're just like changing the world. It's the fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, it's just an amazing opportunity to be part of, of that story now. Absolutely. I mean, how easy was it, for example, to have access to the commission, the European Commission, and to explain to them your views, both on the utility side and from the TSO side later? I would say that the Brussels is really well organized, yeah. I don't like that uh, this Brussels bubble bashing, yeah. As having been myself part of that bubble, not only for that reason, yeah. But you need to really be efficiently organized if you want to take, on the one hand, stakeholders' views into account and have transparency, and on the other hand, you want to move forward, yeah. And what I saw, I give you the example of the clean energy package, yeah. 
it's really a fair process. Yeah. So there, there is a US Euroelectric and so you have access or Solar Europe or Wind Europe, you have access, you talk to the, the people, you have very competent people on commission and parliament side and on council side, you also need to be competent uh, the same way. Yeah? And you can interact with them and uh, this is framed in a good way also with these forums, Florence Forum, Madrid Forum, the infrastructure, these groups, but also should mention here France School of Regulation. There are some players that are really adding a lot of value in their moderation, papers, think tanks. Yeah? So it's really good. There is, of course, I should uh, say that, uh, a difference between NSOE and Euroelectric for the simple reason that uh, NSOE writes rules. Euroelectric doesn't. Yeah, So there's more access and more constraints, also more control over and Fascinating, fascinating. I mean, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about Germany. I, I could talk about uh, the nitty-gritty of, of the policy world in Brussels for, for ages here. It's fascinating. But but I think uh, I'd like to, to move the discussion onto, or, onto Germany. And, and what do you make of recent developments there in terms of the country's coal exit? I mean, it seems to be a little bit postponed. At the same time, it's planning a coal exit, but it's starting uh, you know, a hyper-modern coal plant this weekend. Isn't there some kind of contradiction? Yeah. Dutton, yeah, yeah. Dutton, yeah. It's interesting, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe for, uh, the big picture, yeah, we are 2020. Next year we have elections, yeah. And uh, it seems, I just checked for this, this uh, podcast, also where are we in the so-called Sonntagsfrage, yeah, who would uh, win those elections? Yeah, when you look at this uh, for the last weeks, you see clearly a black-green coalition emerging, yeah. And that's what you kind of feel also when you're in Germany, on the one hand, people want this traditional, but also I would say the Merkel-type innovative approach, yeah, but still very grounded. And they also want uh, something new, which would be more the Greens than today, maybe the, the Social Democrats. At least you, you feel this in looking through the, the polls. Yeah? So what does that mean for the, the future? Yeah, That means that the Greens would push even more for getting coal phase out accelerated. You mentioned it. So it's 2038. That's the agreement. But it could be faster. And honestly, if you want to see, in Germany, it's already agreed, you have 55% reduction by 2030. Yeah? There's no way to keep coal to 2038, just impossible. Yeah? But again, I should mention grits as a bottleneck to be able yeah, to do this. Yeah, And then we had a lot of twos and fro's, but that's normal also in policymaking in everyday's life. Yeah, On, let's say, this um, solar cap, uh, 52 gigawatts, yeah, the question was not, uh, would it be taken off? So this so-called solar decal, yeah? But it's, it's already agreed it's going to be taken off. It was agreed in May. So uh, it's a matter of, is it in June? Is it in the end of May or something like that, yeah? And on Dutton, yeah? Yes, I agree. It's an interesting uh, one, yeah? You see, on the one hand, this is gone in the fourth block of this older plant is now in operation, yeah? And people are demonstrating against it, yeah? This is how Germany is these days. But it's only a matter of time. It's not going to survive the coal exit <laughs> in any sense. There is no such risk. The same for nuclear. There's absolutely no risk that Germany will turn back to nuclear. No way. You also mentioned clearly the, the council presidency. So Germany will go for mm. the presidency in the second half of the year. And it's also there to show direction. You know that COP has been now moved to the next year. It's not going to take place in Glasgow this year. It makes it even more important that the Green Deal, uh, climate law, and Germany's credibility are really proven in the presidency. Absolutely. And that would mean 
you know, greater expansion of renewables even more. So what it means, uh, it's it's offshore wind. Yeah, uh, we should mention also the the wind onshore constraints. There is this law that says uh, you can only have, or the so-called Abstandsregel, yeah, that says you can only have a windmill, uh, and this can also mean a repowered one, one that is upgraded, one kilometer from the houses. This has been a bit relaxed with a rule that says the 16 lender can decide themselves on those rules. But let's see how that goes. We, we see a decrease on onshore wind in Germany. And offshore wind gains momentum. It has been upgraded in the ambition to 20, 30 to uh, now 20 gigawatts. And when you talk to experts, you see them talking about 180 gigs in uh, 2050 or so. Yeah. So that's important. And the networks are not the right ones today. We need the multi-terminal platforms. We need all these innovations materializing there. Commission was talking, by the way, potentially about a regional security coordinator in that region. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's important. Then the sector coupling is on the German agenda. Hydrogen, very important as well. Uh, and then the 10E, and that goes in the alignment direction of networks and media. Uh, Plenty to look out for in the coming weeks and months, and certainly once the German presidency takes up uh, office. But um, that's all for now. Uh, many thanks to you, Susanna Nies, for joining the Montel Weekly Podcast today. Many thanks, Richard. Remember, listeners, keep up to date with all our stories on Montel News. Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's all for now. Goodbye.